This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters. Cryptocurrencies, they, uh, it risks harming everyday Americans. Prudent regulation of cryptocurrencies is indeed needed. After one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange companies filed for bankruptcy, calls for regulation of the industry are growing. Then, since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan, the country has faced economic turmoil and a humanitarian crisis. One resistance group is working to bring democracy back. And the Small Business Innovation Research Program is meant to fund early technologies that could benefit the American public. A recently released report looks at how successful it actually is. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. On November 10th, crypto values started plummeting. FTX, one of the top exchange companies in the market, filed for bankruptcy. It came after customers attempted to withdraw billions of dollars at once following a report about the company's financial instability. Josephine Wolf is an associate professor of cybersecurity policy at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Josephine, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Are you surprised at the collapse of FTX? I think I'm a little surprised that there was this kind of collapse where the people who had actually put their money in this institution distrusted it enough to try and withdraw all at once. I'm not surprised that when that happened, it turned out that there was not enough liquidity there to, to cover those withdrawals. So does something need to be done to prevent this from happening again in the future? I think yes. I mean, I've, I've been a little bit of a crypto skeptic for a long time because I come at it from a background of studying cybercrime. And I do think that there are a huge number of vulnerabilities from a criminal standpoint. But I also think you look at a situation like this where nobody was exactly trying to steal this money. And it seems like there's a huge lack of oversight around um, ensuring that these exchanges have insurance for these accounts the way you would with an FDIC insured account and fooling people into believing that this is the equivalent of putting their money into a bank when it's clearly very different. Well, let's talk about oversight because the president issued an executive order in March. He directed federal agencies to come up with ways to regulate digital assets. First, what are the goals outlined in that order? So the goals outlined in that order are, one, to cut down on the use of cryptocurrency for cybercrime. So things like ransomware or sale of illegal goods online, stuff that's happening almost exclusively with cryptocurrency. There's a real push right now in law enforcement to get better at tracking those payments, to get better at blocking those payments and, and clawing them back after they're made. Um, and, and that's a big part of the executive order. But the other part of the executive order, which I think is arguably in, in direct conflict with that first goal, is what the administration describes as encouraging innovation or leveraging cryptocurrencies and other kinds of virtual currency to enable new forms of banking and financial transfers. And, and that really suggests a push towards things like a central bank-backed digital currency or stuff that I think is going to make it harder to fight the cybercrime that they allude to in the first part of the order. And I do want to talk about that, um, which is the supporting of this crypto development. It calls, as you just said, at, the order actually calls for the development of a central bank digital currency. 
So where do things stand right now? What benefits would this have? So that's a great question. Um, I think that it would have very, very few benefits personally. Uh, the idea of having a central bank backed digital currency would be that there would be fewer fees, faster transactions, make it easier to move money internationally perhaps, um, that people who don't have bank accounts or are otherwise sort of shut out of the banking infrastructure might be able to use a, a digital currency more easily. Um, I think if you look at virtual currencies around the world, there's very little evidence that they have provided unbanked people with any services or access, and much more evidence that they've made people who are speculating and investing in these currencies and setting up exchanges like FTX extremely rich. And what does the crypto industry think of a central bank digital currency? I think most people in the crypto industry are very excited about it, actually, because it, it lends a real air of legitimacy to the whole sort of cryptocurrency endeavor. And I think that many of these players feel that sort of the more virtual currency users there are, the more virtual currencies there are, the more well-established and kind of entrenched this whole system will become. So how is cybercrime currently being addressed, Josephine, and targeted? You know, which, which federal agencies are involved in doing that? So I'd say the FBI has been putting a lot of effort in the last couple of years into really tracking cryptocurrency payments. And we've seen some, some pretty high profile arrests of folks who have stolen and laundered cryptocurrency. We've seen at least one very high profile clawback of a cryptocurrency ransom payment in the Colonial Pipeline case. Um, and, and so there definitely are efforts and, and we've definitely seen some progress in that space. But at the same time, there's still a huge amount of cryptocurrency fueled cybercrime that we're not able to stop and we're not able to track. And is there something more that the federal government can do in cracking down on that illegal activity? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and we've started to see some hints of it. So one of the things the federal government has started doing just in the past couple years is they've started sanctioning some of the cryptocurrency intermediaries who are most beneficial to criminal actors. So we've seen like the SUEX cryptocurrency exchange, which the government estimated 40% of their transactions were for illicit actors being sanctioned by the United States. We've seen um, a little bit of interest in sanctioning a cryptocurrency mixer, which is the company that sort of mixes funds from different cryptocurrency wallets and disperses them out to different accounts so it's harder to track where money is coming from and, and whose money comes from which types of, of thefts or other crimes. Um, and I think you could see the government do a lot more in that space and trying to say, you know, a lot of these exchanges based overseas are fueling criminals or letting them open accounts and we need to cut off transfers of funds to, to those exchanges because a lot of the profit from cybercrime is coming from the United States and North America and Western Europe. And so those countries, even though they can't regulate exchanges based in Russia, have some ability to stop money from flowing into those wallets. I was going to ask you about regulating overseas. The federal government can't do that, but you're saying they can impact what's happening with cybercrime that's coming from overseas. Absolutely right. So if you take the example of ransomware, um, ransomware we think is, is mostly coming from actors outside of the United States, largely sort of concentrated in Eastern Europe and Russia. But most of the money that is being made off ransomware 
is coming from the U.S. and and from other Western countries. And we even see, if you look at like the code of common ransomware programs, a lot of them are set to not actually execute on computers that have, say, a Russian keyboard configuration. So we know that they're they're very sort of deliberately targeting players and and victims outside of these countries where they're being perpetrated. And that gives us an opportunity not to regulate the exchanges those criminals are using, but to regulate those payments that are being made to them, because those payments are largely coming from within our jurisdiction. And so there is an opportunity to say, no, we don't want payments going to North Korea. No, we don't want payments going to Russia. And to, to really at least sort of reduce the amount of money that is flowing to them. All right, Josephine, thanks so much. I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you. Straight ahead on Government Matters, several Afghan groups are resisting the Taliban's power. A leader of one of the groups shares what their goals are and what it will take to make it happen. Stay with us. It's been more than a year since the Taliban took power in Afghanistan following the U.S. withdrawal from the country. Since then, more than two dozen resistance groups have formed across the country, including the National Resistance Front of Afghanistan. Ali Nazari is the head of foreign relations for that organization. Ali, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So first, tell us what it's like living under Taliban rule in Afghanistan right now. Uh, currently, uh, living under Taliban rule is the worst thing that could happen for a human being. Um, Afghanistan right now has been hijacked by a terrorist group. Once again, after 20 years, it has become a safe haven for international and regional terrorist groups. There's 21 terrorist groups living inside that country. Women are being erased from public life at the moment as we speak. Uh, just a few days ago, they were banned from visiting parks and, and public baths, for example. And, and at the same time, we have a, a plethora of crises, political crisis, economic crisis, humanitarian crisis, security crisis. So it's much different than what existed before uh, August 15th, 2021. So explain the National Resistance Front. Uh, what is it? What's, what's the end goal? The National Resistance Front was created just as the Republic of Afghanistan collapsed on August 15, 2021, led by uh, uh, Commander Ahmad Massoud, uh, who um, stayed in the country and chose not to leave. And the remnants of Afghanistan's army, special forces, who were trained, funded, and advised by the United States and other NATO countries, they stayed on to continue their fight against terrorism and for democracy. So the whole narrative that the people of Afghanistan do not want to fight for democracy, do not want to uh, um, fight against terrorism, is false. After August 15, the National Resistance Front has been struggling to reestablish democracy in Afghanistan, a pluralistic democracy where every single citizen enjoys equal rights, regardless of their race, religion, and gender. And at the same time, our struggle is against terrorism. We believe we're the last remaining anti-terrorist forces continue, continuing the global war on terror. It's not a civil war. When we're fighting 21 terrorist groups from around the globe, you cannot characterize this as a civil war, but it's the continuation of the global war on terror. How large is the organization and how are you fighting the Taliban? So right now, we're in the thousands. Um, last year, at this time, we were only in two provinces. This year, we're present in 12 provinces. Uh, we are fighting an unconventional war because of the limitations that we have when it comes to our resources. Yet, 
In the past seven months, we've had a very successful fighting season. Uh, we've been able to achieve so much. Um, just uh, a month ago, we were able to liberate a district hundreds of kilometers away from our center, which is Pangshir province. We were able to keep the province for around 24 hours, and then our forces withdrew, because that's not our aim to sustain control over the districts and provinces right now. At the moment, uh, we are highly successful. We're made up of highly trained forces who have been fighting the Taliban and other terrorist groups for the past 20 years. What has been the response to your group from American officials? So, at the moment, um, unfortunately, um, we are not receiving any help, assistance by anyone. So, when we started on August 15th, we were completely ignored by all countries. And this has been the case for the past year. Um, and as the last remaining democratic forces fighting terrorism, um, it is unfortunate to see the international community ignoring the uh, struggle for freedom and democracy that the people of Afghanistan has right now. What's, what's your group's strategy right now? You said it was not to hold territory or control territory. Then, then how are you going to win against the Taliban? Well, what we've been able to achieve within a year was very difficult for the Taliban to achieve in 15 years. So we've been very successful in, in the strategy that we are pursuing. Uh, we were able to liberate a district. Yet, in order for us to start liberating the country and sustaining control over whole provinces, we will need the assistance of the international community. This cannot be a job only done by the National Resistance Front. Because once again, as I um, uh, mentioned before, we're fighting international terrorist groups, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, many other groups that are present inside Afghanistan. So this should not only be an effort by the National Resistance Front. We need the support of the international community to be able to acquire the uh, resources that we need in order to sustain control over those provinces once we liberate them. The Taliban inherited tens of billions of dollars worth of American equipment from the previous regime. How are you going to fight against that, especially without the international support that you're looking for? Well, right now, with the limited amount of resources, we've been able to uh, defeat them um, in every battle in the past year. Um, they've lost um, many of their prominent commanders, uh, many of their officials. Um, their casualties have been high. They lost a helicopter and during, um, well, in, in June. And, and, um, and so we see low morale. And, and at the end of the day, resources doesn't matter. Uh, before August 15th, Afghanistan's armed forces we're receiving $4 billion worth of uh, military aid on, a, an, on an annual basis. But we saw what happened. So it doesn't matter how, how much resources they have. At the end of the day, it's will, determination, and morale that will determine the victor. And finally, Ali, do you have the support of the Afghan people? Of course. The, how do you know? The people of Afghanistan right now support us. The people of Afghanistan in the past 20 years have w never expressed their, their uh, hatred or opposition to democracy, and they support any group that is fighting for democracy, for their rights, especially in this condition that they're living in, which is hell. Basically, everything has been taken away from them, and as their everyday passes, their lives are becoming much worse. So they need a group to liberate them from this nightmare that they're living in right now. 
Well, Ali, we certainly wish you the best. Thank we you very much. We don't want uh, the Afghan people to suffer, as you know, but uh, thank you so much for coming and sharing the, the thank story you for with having us. Me. Thank you. Coming next, the government encourages high-tech small business innovation through a funding program. New research explores how that money is actually being used. We'll be right back. Congress has reauthorized the Small Business Innovation Research Program for another three years, despite some criticisms. A new report looks at how SBIR money is being spent and on what. Michael Crosby is the CEO of Leadership Connect that authored the report. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. So you went through five years of data. You went through thousands of awards. Overall, how successful is this program? Well, what we found going through all the data is it's highly successful. So we compared it to venture capital, which is a private sector analogy, and we found that the SBIR program is 16% more successful than its private sector peer, which is pretty impressive. A common criticism of this program is that the money goes to the same companies that have learned to kind of game the system. Is there evidence of that? We didn't really find that. So. Uh, Almost half of all recipients just get one phase one award, and then that's it. And the pattern of success we saw is that uh, SBIR recipients received multiple awards from multiple offices and multiple agencies. That's the pattern of success. Like so-called, you know, SBIR mills. We really didn't see that in the data over a five-year period. So, which are the big technology areas that agencies are looking to fund through this program? So the, both the civilian and non-civilian agencies are investing in multiple technologies, but you'll see artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, swap, which is strength, weight, power, cost, as three of the main areas that they're investing in. You know, it's no surprise that DOD is the one that's issuing a large portion of these um, SBIR awards, but which civilian offices are the main um, contributors? Sure, uh, Health and Human Services, DHS, NASA are the three main offices that we saw, but we also saw Department of Transportation and many other civilian agencies participating in the program. Any new ones that were surprising? I mean, you, you mentioned transportation. Um, what else? Any of the smaller ones? Uh, I think a lot of the uh, sub-agencies within HHS were participating in the program looking for innovations in medical research. That was interesting in, in our findings. Is there a difference, Michael, between outcomes for um, civilian offices versus the DOD awards that uh, SBIR, that participates in SBIR funding? Sure, so we analyzed all of the leaders in the close to 500 offices that participate in the program. So 90% of them have a STEM background multiple degrees, but one thing that stood out with civilian versus non-civilian agencies is the length of time that those leaders stayed enrolled. In civilian agencies, it was more than two and a half times as long. Those agencies tended to have slightly better outcomes than offices with higher turnover. Well, so let's stick with DOD for a minute, because when you talk to each of the military services, they all said they had different approaches to, um, to how they go about awarding SBIR funding. What were those different approaches? Did they have different outcomes? Uh, so a, a good example would be the Navy versus the Air Force. So the Navy 
Uh, their approach is to award a phase one with a company that they think they can make that will make it all the way to phase three versus Air Force is more what they call shots on goal. We'll try a lot of different things and see which ones work. Uh, the interesting thing is both of those uh, approaches are highly successful. So uh, both the Air Force and Navy are more successful than the Army in their approach. And when you say more successful, explain a little bit about those metrics. Sure. Um, more success is defined as more companies making it all the way to phase three, which implies that the you know, specific agencies or departments were happy with the outcomes and that those same companies were also getting kind of referred internally, like here's a successful outcome we're getting, your office should take a look at it as well. Tell me about what you learned about the people that are making these award decisions. What did you learn? Definitely straight out of central casting. So, you know, national universities, anywhere from, you know, two to five degrees, uh, over 90% STEM. What we saw with non-civilian agencies is often they have a private sector or non-profit experience in the resume versus civilian agencies. Uh, we didn't really see that. People tend to go to work at a civilian agency after college and stay there. Um, so the bottom line is, you know, the individuals making decisions on uh, SBIR awards are highly technical people. And are you going to continue to be looking at this program moving forward? Is there anything specific that you'll be looking for maybe in next year's uh, awards? I, what we're starting to look at is the parallels with um, the SBIR program and normal tech contracting within DOD and civilian agencies. And we're seeing some of the same patterns emerge with success that we're seeing in the SBIR program. So we'll continue to study that. All right, Michael, nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much, Mimi. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for our email list on our homepage. We'll be back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.